up, everyone? Welcome to The Conversation. I'm your host, Anna Kasparian, and we're about to have a fantastic conversation with Ezra Klein, the author of Why We're Polarized and also the host of Vox's podcast, The Ezra Klein Show. Thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here. So your book is fascinating, especially at a time like now where there is quite a bit of polarization. But you make the argument that polarization has always existed. And even in society where you don't necessarily see so much polarization on the surface, the thing that's kind of like suppressing it is like a dictatorship or maybe a totalitarian regime. So why do you kind of point to it in that way or describe it in that way? Do you think that polarization has maybe like a positive aspect to it that's necessary in a political process? I do. So one of the things I'm trying to push back on is I think a very lazy conversation about how politics functions, but also what polarization is in Washington. Mm-hmm. So polarization gets used as the synonym for disagreeable, bitter, extreme, right? If you're polarized, you're extreme. Yeah. That isn't what it means. It just means things are clustering around two poles, and that thing can be ideology, it can be identity, affiliation. All kinds of different dynamics can be polarized, and some can be polarized at the same time, some aren't. Mm-hmm. The issue in American politics is that a lot of people, and probably a lot of people who run American politics, given that we live in like a boomer <laughs> system, mm-hmm. is that a lot of them remember mid 20th century American politics and they baseline to that. And mid 20th century American politics was very weird and not necessarily in a good way. We had functionally a four party political system with Democrats, as we more or less think about them today, Dixiecrats, which were, as you gestured towards, a basically authoritarian political structure mm-hmm. ruling the American South that had entered into a power sharing agreement with the National Democratic Party, as long as they let them continue enforcing racial segregation in the American South. Liberal Republicans, conservative Republicans. And so within this, you had a lot of divides in American politics, the civil rights movement, the anti-war movement, you had urban rights, assassinations, the women's rights movement, the indigenous rights movement, mm-hmm. but they didn't map onto our parties. And so the parties were able to either compromise or, and this is also very important and I think is undertold in the story of American politics, suppress. And one of the things they did for a long time, certainly the first half of the century, is suppress the racial dimension of legislating. So the Dixiecrats bottled up anti-lynching laws, civil rights laws, etc. So polarization can be bad for a political system, and I think for reasons we can talk about, it's bad in ours. But it's not usually the polarization itself, it's the interaction of political institutions. And suppression is also really bad for a political system. It means you don't deal or resolve problems you actually have. And so mm-hmm. I don't think we should look backwards as a golden age. I think we actually just have to understand what we're in today. So that's fascinating. I don't look back and feel nostalgic in any way. I know that there are certainly older voters, politically active individuals here who think you know, there was a time when we were willing to work together as two different parties. But what I think is also really interesting is that while there's this narrative of polarization, I would argue that there's a lot of agreement when it comes to both Democrats and Republicans. It just depends on how they identify as Democrats or Republicans. I mean, when push comes to shove, I see a lot of the Democratic leadership, for instance, agreeing with the Republican Party on policies that you know a lot of Americans are frustrated with, whether it be tax cuts on the wealthy or maybe even considering entitlement reform. You know, on a very surface level, if you pay attention to the drama and the political theater that takes place. It might seem like there's a lot of division, but 
there actually is a lot of agreement when it comes to policies. Wouldn't you agree? Not really. Mm -hmm. um, so I think there are definitely efforts where one side will try to compromise. So I think, say, mm -hmm. entitlement reform, right? right? There were a number of efforts in the Obama years, particularly, where you would have one of these grand bargains and Republicans would give higher taxes on the rich and the Democrats would accept some level of cuts on Social Security in mm -hmm. particular, right? They were going to do chain CPI. And whether you hate chain CPI, I was against that or you don't, that is a political system working through compromise. They didn't agree on that. It was a I get something I want and you get something you want. But what you see there, because that didn't pass, and in everything, right, from Obamacare, which was a perfectly partisan vote, in a way that's saying Medicare or Medicaid before we're not, or you see it in climate change, which could get nowhere because of the filibuster in the Senate, is that even small things can't pass now and big things really can't pass. So I actually do agree with what you said about the mass public. I think mm -hmm. that there is larger levels of agreement and also much more openness to agreement in the mass public. And it's not so much that they all lean one way or the other. But they're actually just open to a lot of different ways to solve problems. Right. And in particular, people take a lot of cues from the political elites they already trust. So if, if like both sides come together and say, this would be a great idea, this healthcare bill is fantastic, a lot of people be like, okay, well, if you say it's good, then then I buy that. I mean, I trust you to know what know what you're talking about here. Mm -hmm. But if everybody is always at war in Washington, then everything divides down. And so one of the things you see a lot is that there'll be initially talk of an agreement and it'll seem like there's something like consensus. Then you get to the actual policymaking and it collapses into these party line votes. That don't don't go anywhere. So one thing too there is just like that transmission from a slightly more mixed mass public to a hyperpolarized political elite is one of the, the mechanisms I'm trying to trace in the book. So you also talk about the power of identity in our whole political system and discourse. And I think that it's really important to talk about that because while identity politics, I think rightly so, gets a bad rap. In reality, even the very people who claim that they reject identity politics are very much have identity politics ingrained in, in how they think and how they vote. And so in your book, you talk about an experiment that I thought was so fascinating that really determined the power of identity, even when it comes to irrelevant things mm -hmm. like overestimating the cost of something or the value of something. Can you talk about that a yeah, little bit? Yeah, so this experiment, which I just think is fascinating, it comes mm -hmm. from a guy named Henry Tajvel. And Tajvel, he was a Polish Jew born in, I think it was the 1920s, but he moved to France because he couldn't go to university as a Jew in Poland. Mm -hmm. Moved to France in the 30s, became, joined World War II, was captured by the Germans, lived in a German prisoner of war camp for years. He was not killed because he's understood to be a French prisoner of war, not a Polish Jew. If he'd been a Polish Jew, he would have been exterminated. And then he comes back, he's released at the end of the war, and his whole family's killed. And so the question for him is, why were they killed and why not him? How could something as thin as an identity that wasn't even his like truest, deepest identity. Like, how could that matter so much in terms of how he was treated, in terms of how his family was treated? So he's a social psychologist, and he begins doing a series of experiments that are now known as the minimal group paradigm experiments. What he does is he brings a bunch of kids, all these boys from one school, into a room, and he says, "Can you estimate the number of dots on the screen?" And you know, they say, "Great," and the researchers like, "Okay, that's you know, that's the number of dots." Then they say. Can you actually hang out here for a minute? We want to do one more experiment, not related to the first, but just for ease of use, we're going to just separate you into the people who overestimated the dots and underestimated. Mm -hmm. And in truth, this is completely false. So we've got here is a group that is built on a meaningless characteristic, right. dot estimation that isn't even true because it's totally random in reality. And in this next experiment where they're allocating money to each other, not to themselves, immediately these kids begin giving much more to the people who were in their like co-dot overestimator, underestimator. It's incredible, yeah. And so 
What's so amazing about that experiment is that was supposed to be below the line. What he wanted to do was do a series of these and find when did you add enough serious group dynamics such that group behavior took hold. He couldn't find something underneath the line. So this gets replicated again and again. And like if you want to just see it play out in human life, just look at sports, right? Where right. we get very into, we even sometimes riot because a team that is not in fact loyal to us, these people would go anywhere depending on you know what the contracts are and stadiums, you know, tax breaks and the whole thing. But we invest so much into that. So identity is a way we deal with the world. It's very easy to trigger it. And once it's triggered, it really affects how we act. So now you move that over to politics, mm -hmm. which has begun mapping a lot of very core identities from religious to racial to geographic, etc., on top of each other. And the stakes are often literally life or death. And you know, even on a social media platform like Twitter, you see how sticking to your ideological or your the group that you identify with the most. Staying loyal to them is something that's incentivized because if you veer a little bit in a different direction, you face the consequences immediately by your group, mm -hmm. right? I see that all the time on social media and I think that's super interesting. So now I wanna kind of take you know, what you talk about in your book and apply it to some of the more current events that we've been discussing on the show. Look, I, I wonder about how cable news talks about politics in this very sports event kind of way, right? It, it feels like I'm watching a football game at times mm -hmm. when I'm watching cable news. Um, what are your thoughts on that and how it could uh, further like divide the country in ways that are unhealthy and really hinder any type of mm -hmm. progress? Yeah, there's so much here. So mm -hmm. one is that one of the dynamics I hate the most in journalism itself, mm -hmm. and you see this a lot in cable news, but you see it also just in other kinds of news, newspapers and so on, is a focus on horse race journalism mm -hmm. completely detached from any sense of stakes. So the, the people come in and they're just like, they love covering the game and who's up and down in the polls. and. Like that's not what politics is about. And there's a weird way in which journals are allowed to have very strong opinions on like who's good at campaigning. but. Whose healthcare plan actually makes sense? Like, right. you're, you're like that in traditional journalism is very frowned upon. So that's one thing that I think that journalism has gotten itself into a weird place where it's able to talk about the um, competition of politics somewhat openly, but the stakes of politics are much harder for mainstream organizations to, to suggest or to, to discuss. Then you move into cable news and like this era of choice-based news, and not just cable, but digital news, um, mm -hmm. YouTube channels like this one. Vox is another part of all this, right? We're all now in this incredible choice-based media, and so compared to when it was three television networks and local newspaper monopolies and you know a couple radio stations yeah. now we have like everything in competition at all times and that one means we end up competing for a more polarized audience and in doing that we polarize the audience more and then we become more polarized and polarize the audience more and so you enter into these feedback loops that are very difficult now good organizations are able to remain rooted to principles and values but a lot of bad organizations they just become part of a team and they just become part of a team moving in whatever direction the team moves and they're not rooted by values they're following a group dynamic that includes their audience and includes the people they cover and that can get really dangerous because you're unmoored from any kind of principle and it's just pure power competition. Yeah, it, it is fascinating because you'll come across, let's say Trump supporters and let's take the topic of the impeachment investigation. If you talk to Trump supporters who only rely on right wing news, 
they'll know nothing about key elements of the impeachment investigation or what was discovered in the impeachment investigation. And so that type of feedback loop is really dangerous when it comes to ensuring that the public is informed enough to make the right decisions for themselves. And it's not, by the way, it's not limited to Trump supporters. I think you see the same on the left depending on what type of media they consume. If they're consuming strictly progressive news outlets, you know, they tend to have a very negative view on certain democratic politicians, you know, it's almost like people are primed and I and I try my best to kind of avoid feeding into that with our network, but it is difficult because we are all competing for for views and for eyeballs. But at the same time, if you do you know, veer away from the let's say political thoughts or ideologies that the hosts typically have, you get punished for it mm-hmm. by your audience. So I, it's it's a really interesting and difficult model to deal with or break out of. Um, and I do think that it's unfortunately leading to a public that might be less informed yeah, on, on the dangerous. different perspectives. There's a study I talk about in the book by yeah. um, Gustav Sud and Aller. It's called The Parties in Our Heads. And mm-hmm. basically what it did was it asked Republicans and Democrats to, how many people of different kinds, right, just using stereotypes of the parties do you think are in the other party? And so it was like, you know, what percentage of Democrats are union members, LGBT, African American? What percentage of Republicans are older or make more than $250,000 a year or that kind of thing, or evangelicals? And what they found was one, misperceptions of who is in the parties are just huge everywhere. People think like 30% of the Republican Party makes more than $250,000 a year, which like literally cannot be true given income dynamics. But what was I think scary for those of us in the media mm-hmm. was misperceptions got much worse as people consumed more media. Yeah. So the idea that as you consume more media, you get a more realistic understanding of politics often isn't true. What you get is an amplified version of the worst of the other side. And I also want to be careful here because sometimes the other side is doing things that are really wrong. Something that goes alongside not seeing polarization as just evil is it just isn't going to be the case that the truth is always in the middle, that everybody is equally right. But at the same time, you have to be careful with are you in an incentive and system and an ecosystem that is pushing you to find truth? And it's okay if you have to end up at crosswise with what your audience already wants to believe. Have you built that relationship with them? Is the identity that you're all there together with, is it truth seeking or is it movement oriented? Or are you in a position where you're actually captured? And mm-hmm. if you began to stray, like you would just lose. And so that's one reason I think that the left and right media ecosystems are actually pretty different. If you oh, look at the right, yeah. the Fox News is overwhelmingly dominant on the right. 60% of Republicans trust it. That's more than twice as many as trust any other news outlet and about the same number watched it in the last week again, more than twice as many. On the left, which has its problems 100% for sure. But it's very interwoven between what you would think of as like self-consciously progressive organizations, but a lot of mainstream organizations, even some center-right ones like the Wall Street Journal. It's a mainstream and also opinionated ecosystem. So you get different incentives with different players. Some of them are pushing towards escalation and ideology. Some of them are trying to be like decidedly down the middle and show they're not part of any party or movement. And that diversity of of voices, but also approaches, I think is pretty important for disciplining some of the dynamics you're talking about there. So let's talk about the presidential candidates, because I've noticed a pretty significant difference in how certain candidates are covered. So I'll give you an example. There seems to be this rejection of Bernie Sanders, his popularity, and more importantly, how his economic policies resonate across the board, right? The media tends to ignore that or deny that it even exists. Whereas there 
there's a lot of positive coverage on candidates who haven't really offered much. Now that's my opinion, but to see someone like let's say Amy Klobuchar get as much positive news coverage or as much coverage as she gets in the news is fascinating, especially when you compare it to how much coverage Bernie Sanders gets, right? And when he gets the coverage, it's usually negative. So it just feels like there is this effort to hone in on the identity politics that you talk about a lot, right? So a lot of reductionism occurs, there's less conversation about the economic issues that the majority of Americans agree with. They're not actually very polarized on that. There's a lack of discussion on the frustrations toward corruption. And I feel like the media likes to talk about candidates who do focus on the identity politics that have given identity politics a bad name. So let's just let's not talk about economic inequality. Let's just focus on how it's really bad for immigrants in America right now. Let's focus on how the gay community is being discriminated against. Let's focus on like just re- reducing things to very small groups to avoid a discussion about something that really resonates across the board, which is economic injustice. Um, do you see that happening in the media, or is that like a perspective that you would disagree with? I think I probably disagree with it overall, but mm-hmm. I'm not. I don't want to tell you it never happens. So it's definitely not my impression at all that Amy Klobuchar gets even a large fraction of the coverage Bernie mm-hmm. Sanders gets, um, because she does much worse in polling. Now she's had moments where she rises up a little bit, and there is in general a huge media bias towards anything changing. So anybody just like moving forward in a straight line gets somewhat less coverage, and anybody like going way up or way down gets like big bounces in coverage, but. I can even say at Vox, like we have covered Amy Klobuchar a fraction of how mm-hmm. much we've covered Bernie Sanders and how much attention we've given to his policies. So I would say Bernie Sanders has mostly structured a lot of the Democratic debate. I mean, almost all the attention is on the Medicare for all plans. That's true. The yeah. amount of attention that any other healthcare plan gets in any way is a whole lot smaller. I do think the the other thing though mm-hmm. that you're saying there is something too, which is that there are some issues that people there is a energy to the way people fight around them and mm-hmm. the energy to the way people cover them. And I almost wouldn't call it like a, I'm not sure it's how much coverage they get proportionally. I think it's how the coverage is treated, which yeah, is to say that's, that that's economic exactly right. issues are treated as something you can kind of discuss, debate, have different views on, you know, a lot of different players get hurt in them. Whereas issues that are more about immigration or rights are treated as more value issues. And that if something is going wrong there, it will all be treated, it will all be covered mostly in one way. Mm-hmm. And so I think it's something people notice is not actually that those issues are getting more coverage. I don't think they do. Like for instance, I worked at the Washington Post. We have a whole section that covered business and economics and did a ton of coverage of of inequality. I was in that section, the business economic section. Mm -hmm. We didn't have that section for some of these other issues. So I know for a fact there were fewer reporters that are covering those. Mm -hmm. But there was much more coverage of them from a moral perspective. Where there would be outrage over something happening, whereas something like, you know, do tax cuts for the rich work gets treated as not a moral issue nearly so much as a like an empirical issue to have economists from both sides weigh in on. Yeah, so you said something really interesting that I want to follow up on. You mentioned how the media seems to reject change or they fight back against change. No, I think that they cover change. They cover change. That okay. they, they swarm to things changing. Ah, I see. Like okay. they don't cover things that are stable, which mm-hmm. I think is a huge problem actually. Because oftentimes the most important things are actually stable. Mm-hmm. Okay, it's fascinating. So I want to talk about what you think would happen if, because 
there's a lot of discussion about, okay, well, what happens if someone as progressive and revolutionary as Bernie Sanders wins and you still have someone like Mitch McConnell mm -hmm. in the Senate? And I think you have some fascinating thoughts about what that could do to polarization moving forward. Um, I, th I don't know about what it will do to polarization, yeah. but it will stop Sanders' agenda cold. You think so? I don't have any doubt of it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think this is like a real issue. One of my pushes to people on the left, uh, I've been talking with them about on this book tour, is that I think the left has a very strong view of politics built on popular will and support. Right. So the idea, and, and this is in implicit in some of what you've been saying, is that the Bernie Sanders agenda, the, the more democratic socialist version of the democratic agenda, is popular. And if allowed to have clear expression, it will bring people out, it will move the public. And I think that may even be right. The problem is that bringing people out, moving the public has a very hard time in our political system expressing itself into popular support and then into power. Mm -hmm. So I mean, right now, for instance, Democrats won more votes than the Republicans did at the White House level, but obviously Donald Trump is president. They won more votes at the Senate level, but Mitch McConnell's majority leader because of that, Republicans have the Supreme Court, which is also very meaningful. And so you not only have that, but even when they are in power, so Barack Obama was president, but had Mitch McConnell, gun control was overwhelmingly popular, mm -hmm. but it couldn't pass. It got nowhere in the Senate because of things like the filibuster. And so one of the things that I push people on the left towards is mm -hmm. trying to have a little bit more of a theory of political institution reform. If you wanna have a system where popular vote majorities express themselves into power, what you need to do is get rid of things like the filibuster, move towards proportional representation in politics, um, instant runoff voting, campaign finance reform, get rid of the electoral college. You can't expect it to work the way you want in this system because the system is built to foil popular majorities. Right, so that's, I agree with you on that. I agree that the system um, certainly does need, we need institutional reform. Form in order to create, you know, I think a more equitable system between Democrats and Republicans for sure. But I will say this: Look, the actions of Donald Trump, his policies are not even really that they're not popular, right? They're not. He doesn't even have the majority of Americans supporting him, as we mm -hmm. know with Hillary Clinton winning the popular vote. I bring him up because he has been able to accomplish quite a bit, even with. Republicans in office who disagree with him because he makes people bend to his will, right? I mean, you look at all these Republicans who ended up folding and going along with whatever agenda he has, even though it's against what their principles used to be, right? Or at least the principles that they claim they had. And it's because he has this base that's so strong and so vociferous that people are afraid of losing their political careers as a result of going up against Donald Trump. So I'm wondering, you know, why the same can't be true of a politician like Bernie Sanders, who clearly has an army of people who are strong, they're fighters, so much so that they get criticized constantly in the media for being too vociferous. But also, Bernie Sanders isn't pushing for policies that only resonate with a small portion of voters. He's pushing for policies that resonate even among Republicans, because the frustrations with, and I mean Republican voters specifically, the frustrations with corruption, the frustrations with a broken healthcare system. You look at polling, you take the you know partisan labeling out of it, and you just poll American voters on the issues, and. It's incredible how many Americans actually agree with his set of policy proposals. So if you have a group of voters who are willing to fight on your behalf and go to states where Republicans are fighting him, 
and and basically say like, no, we're gonna make you bend to our will or your political career is done. You don't think that that's a possibility? Like you don't think that's a theory of change that could work? So I don't think it's true about Donald Trump. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think he's gotten anything like the Bernie Sanders scale agenda passed. He's gotten tax cuts Republicans wanted to do for a long time. Right, and, and Democrats. Then, and then some, not most. Right. So then, then he failed on Obamacare appeal, right? Mm-hmm. They tried to do that and they failed. And then beyond that, there's not much legislatively they've gotten done. So he's not reformed the nation's immigration laws, right? They've not redone that. These put forward proposals and tried to use the Dream Act as leverage to cut legal immigration dramatically. It went absolutely nowhere. Mm-hmm. He himself is sort of lazy and distractible, so he's not had that much of a, a, right. an expansive agenda. But I think this is important because I do think there's become a view that Donald Trump proves you can somehow like rewrite the legislative rules of American politics. But the truth is, he just didn't get that much done. He's a symbolic politician who likes fighting with people on Twitter, and that has sort of worked out out for him in the realm of the public, but it he has, has not done anything at the scale of Medicare for all, of a Green New Deal, of a lot of things that Bernie Sanders wants to do. And so I think the, the view that he shows her is some alternative path. In many ways, I actually think Donald Trump shows how much the system will absorb any kind of player from any direction and keep them from getting a lot of the things they want done, done. So while I agree that he hasn't gotten much done legislatively, think about how much he's done you know, outside of Congress. And even when there was a little bit of pushback, uh, the people in his own party, the politicians in his own party, who typically would be against his actions, end up helping cover up for whatever oh, he's yeah. doing. Oh yeah, I mean that's true. Yeah, and the reason why they do that, I mean, look at think of Lindsey Graham for instance. Lindsey Graham was not friendly toward Trump uh, during the election, but he's now Trump's most avid supporter and defender because he's worried about his political career. And so, whether it's legislatively or even outside of you know any type of legislation, political actions by politicians can be defended if they have a base that's strong so enough. I, that, yeah. I think it's a very scary set of things around Trump and accountability, mm-hmm. and, and that's one thing. And I think it fits to a lot of the polarization story. But I actually would tell the story of Trump and the Republicans a little bit differently. Mm-hmm. Take Graham. What Graham has done, and this is like comes from the reporting around him, is he has made a decision to suck up to Trump constantly and everywhere in order to influence him on foreign policy. Right. Like that is Lindsey Graham's like underlying view that like what he can do, he cares about foreign policy and he's gonna try to move Trump in his direction. And the way to do that is to suck up to him in public. So on say foreign policy, somebody like Bernie Sanders or any Democrat, there's a lot more expansive executive authority there. And so I think he has a lot more power and he could do a lot more directly. Mm-hmm. But the thing that is true for Sanders, and it's also true for Biden or Klobuchar or Warren or any of them, is it is an expansive legislative agenda. It is a you cannot do Medicare for all through an executive order. You just mm-hmm, can't. Right. You can't do the Green New Deal through an executive order. Like you can't. And so all these things are going to have to pass. What Trump has done is cut a deal with Republicans, where he does mostly what Republicans in Congress want, as long as they protect him on things like corruption. And so you don't his, think the Republicans are afraid of losing their political careers? They're if they definitely go up afraid of him. Trump? But remember, Trump came in and he. Mm-hmm. Said, I'm going to give everybody health care. I'm going to never touch Medicaid or Medicare or Social Security. I'm going to raise taxes on people like me. He had this sort of populist theory that he's going to begin compromising on economics to go harder on social culture wars, immigration, etc. And he like just folded on all that. He doesn't try to change Republican tax policy or change deregulation policy. He's not trying to. He kept talking about that he was going to let Medicare I mean, negotiate on pharmaceuticals. So he folded two Republicans in Congress just as much as they folded him. Yeah, I don't I, think that's the future you want for Bernie I Sanders. I don't think, but I don't think that. 
that Trump was ever serious about his populist message. I don't think that he was genuine or authentic about it at all. I think that the one thing that Donald Trump is smart about is understanding what frustrates people and he knows how to market to them. And that's exactly what he did. I don't think he was ever genuine about cutting drug prices or doing anything about avoiding cuts to entitlement programs. In fact, just recently in an interview, he talked about how he's looking to cut social security. Yeah, he admitted he's, that. He's moved directly in their, in, in their direction. Right. I just think to me, and I, I, mm -hmm. maybe I'm losing the thread of what we're discussing here. Uh -huh. Trump has had to me a generically Republican and relatively legislatively unsuccessful presidency. And nobody wants that for the next term. I mean, Republicans mm -hmm. may want it for the next Democratic president, but I don't think you do and I don't think I do. And so the question of how do you handle the problem of the US Senate is not a solved problem by Donald Trump. Like mm -hmm. he did not handle it. Yes, it is true they will support him on impeachment, but if the best the next Democratic president gets is not impeached, that will be a failed presidency given the scale of the problems we have. So I, I can talk about this for hours. Uh, we're out of time, but I, I have to ask you one more question about this because you say that, you know, the problem that a President Bernie Sanders would face in the Senate is not unique to Bernie Sanders. Mm -hmm. Biden would deal with the yep. same thing, even though he's at the moment naive enough to think that he can like unite the entire country and reach across the aisle and get some compromise. So what is the solution? What, what, what can be done? Because if there is no politician on the left that can really get anything done legislatively, and help to unite the country, then are we just gonna keep going in this direction? I think the most likely thing is we keep going in this direction. I'm not, I'm not here for hope. That's a disaster. <laughs> I know it is, it's a totally terrifying situation. Yeah. But I will say that for anybody who wants to have a legislatively ambitious presidency, the absolute first thing they have to do if mm -hmm. they are in a position where they won the Senate is they have to get rid of the filibuster on day one. Like if you do not do that, there's no chance Democrats are gonna have 60 votes. Mm -hmm. And so there's no chance that Republicans are gonna join on to Joe Biden's healthcare plan or Bernie Sanders' healthcare plan or Elizabeth Warren's healthcare plan. And none of them. You need to be able to pass things as hard as it is to get just even undivided government. If you're lucky enough to get that or skilled enough to get that or popular enough to get that, you need to be able to govern with it. And so they need to get rid of the filibuster and then take just democracy reform in general seriously. DC and Puerto Rico should be states because they should be states Absolutely. and have political representation. But doing that would also mean that black and brown voters in those places get to choose senators. And that would matter in the Senate and not overly amplifying these whiter, more rural, more conservative places. Democrats keep coming in. And they keep trying to do ambitious legislation first before they've made it possible to pass legislation again. And then they demobilize their own supporters because they don't get it through. So whether it's Bernie Sanders or Warren or Biden or anybody, if they want to have a successful presidency, they need to begin by making a successful presidency possible in the American institutions that they're going to be governing through. All right. Ezra Klein, author of Why We're Polarized, please check it out. And thank you so much for taking the time to thank come you. in and speak with us. Really enjoyed it. All right, thank you for watching and we'll see you soon.